0: Well, we're back this morning, let's see, in Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, and we're returning to the God-breathed words of Matthew's Gospel, where the Holy Spirit, through Matthew, as we've been sharing, and through Matthew's Gospel account, has been showing us who Jesus is according to God's Word. And though we're a little bit ahead of the birth of Christ and the Gospel of Matthew, It's really helpful and fitting to prepare our hearts for Christmas and for the songs that we just sang. Who is Jesus according to God's Word? That's something that gets lost, obviously, in the shuffle, not just at Christmas, but really in many church traditions. And Matthew is writing through the power of the Holy Spirit to remind us, to remind the children of God that according to God's Word, Jesus is what we just sang. Jesus is the promised and long-awaited Messiah. He's the promised and long-awaited Christ. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is God's promised new beginning for a world that is dying in its sin. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Now, we... Know that, and we're familiar with that, and we see it in our Christmas cards that we exchange with one another. We read about it, we sing the songs. But as amazing as that is, and over time, as believers, we get a little desensitized and it loses its wow factor. And that's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, as wonderful and as amazing as the gift of Christ is. By the time we get to Matthew chapter 3, God through Matthew has shown us that Jesus is a king whom the world is not ready or willing to receive. Jesus is a king who the world is not ready or willing to receive. And this is the testimony of God's word, not just about Joseph, who needs a dream and an angel and someone to speak into his life in order to not divorce his wife, and this is not just true of King Herod. This is also frequently, brothers and sisters, a testimony about our own hearts, especially at Christmas time. It's especially true about people who frequently have more important things to do, whether it be in ministry or family or fitness or work or our entertainment, be it our TV or our video games, any of those things where we have more important things to do than worry about who Jesus is. And let's be real about that, okay? All of us, myself together, okay? How often are we preoccupied and anxious about many things other than who Jesus is and God's promise that He is coming soon, and whether we die or whether He comes, we're going to see Him face to face. It, Generally speaking, even in church circles, and even as you look at the posts and the blogs of many churches and many pastors, it's not the foremost thing on our mind. Our minds are busy with many other things, and that's especially true during the holiday season. And it shows us how true God's Word is, about how blinded we can be by our idols, how blinded we can be by our pride, how blinded we can be by our issues and our problems, and ultimately how blinded we can be by our unbelief. Because when we're preoccupied with all of those things, and that's what's keeping us busy, okay, let's, let's just think for a second. How much time do we take to prepare for the Super Bowl? How much time do we take to prepare for a Christmas or Thanksgiving meal? Compare that with how much time we take to prepare our hearts to be with and come face to face with our Savior and our Lord. Right? And when we consider these things and we consider what Matthew's writing about, we see it's not just Joseph and King Herod and the Pharisees and the scribes and everybody in Jerusalem, it's us. That according to God's word, what we also desperately need for Christmas is not a new sweater, not a new car, not a new Nintendo Switch, not a new video game, What we so desperately need is for God's help to wake us up and to open our eyes and enable us to see what we sang this morning. What we need is an awareness of how desperately we need the mercy of God, His undeserved love and compassion and forgiveness and help for people who are busy with so many other things, Than the one who created us and loved us and gave his life for us. Last year, I made mention of the former tech superstar, Tony Shea, who was killed by a fire in a friend's home. And you'll recall, and it's been written up extensively, allegedly, the night of the fire, first responders came to the shed that he was sleeping in and they called repeatedly for Mr. Shea to open the door. And there was no response and he was unresponsive. And finally they had to break open the door and they had to take him out. But unfortunately it was too late and several days later he died as the consequence of that fire, unresponsive. Well, as we come to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew shows us how God in love and mercy wakes His people up. And He does so through His prophet, the herald, John the Baptist, who pounds at the door of our hearts with the words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's with this message, and it's with this messenger, that God in love, as promised, shows His people mercy what they don't deserve. He gives them an opportunity to wake up, and He does this to prepare their hearts to rightly receive His Son, who He sent ultimately to die for our sins. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. And as we go through John the Baptist's ministry, we're going to consider how does the Lord prepare His people? How does He wake them up? How does He get their attention? How does He prepare them to rightly recognize and receive His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Matthew 3.1 In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins." down and thrown into the fire. This is the word of the Lord. Well, by all accounts, the biblical accounts, all four Gospels, Acts, the Apostle Paul, Peter, and all first century historical accounts, Roman, Christian, most of those coming from Josephus, but by all accounts, straight across the board, John the Baptist sometime early in the first century, bursts onto the scene in the Roman province of Judea. And from prostitutes to kings, from the top to the bottom, John the Baptist does more than just capture everyone's attention. Verse 5 and 6, it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins." What is it about this man and what is it about this message that wakes up the entire Roman province of Judea and moves its people to drop everything, their Christmas shopping, their sacrifices, going to the temple, all the things that they have to do to drop everything, to go out to the wilderness, to do something that is unprecedented in the history of the world. You look through the scriptures, there's no history of baptism like John the Baptism's baptism in the Old Testament, it's not recorded. You look through the history of the Essenes and the Qumran community, and you look through the history of the Jewish people and the rabbis, there's not a history. There's a history of ritual purification, going to the temple, cleaning water, doing things according to the law of Moses, but there's not a history of a mass migration to the wilderness for people to confess their sins publicly. And to be baptized in the river Jordan in such a way that says to everyone, in God's eyes, I am more unclean than a filthy dog or an idolatrous Gentile. In God's eyes, I need more than just the ceremonial purification of the temple, of the priests, and even of the law. I need the Lord to kill me and completely remake me in order to be ready for God's king And in order to enter into his kingdom. I am not fit as I am to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now when you read Paul's epistles. He makes mention of those who will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And it's interesting how often we gloss over those. Because we assume as Christians. Hey we're here at church. We're all in the kingdom. You read that list. Idolaters. Immoral people, people who are prone to dissension and strife and conflict. And he walks through basically most of the fruits of the flesh as you go through those things. And he says, such as these are not going to inherit the kingdom. Such as these are not going to enter in. And we become, all of us, very desensitized because we've read those so often. Because as we look at those, it's like, whoa, am I a scoffer? Do I get into conflicts? Are there disagreements? We think of those as applying to every evil person who's outside of the church. Paul's writing those letters to the people in the church. We see that this entire region is coming out and they are begging God for mercy and forgiveness. That's what this is all about. What is it that moves an entire region and people To humble themselves and do something like this. Well, in verses two and three, Matthew shows us that it is something radically different than what typically fills stadiums and churches then and now. There's no growth program, there's no amazing vision, there's no promise of success, there is no I have a dream speech to fill the Washington Mall, there's no million man march. There is simply a man and a message that calls God's people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what sets this man apart and what sets his message apart from all the rest is the power and the presence of God's word. And brothers and sisters, this is what God uses to wake us up. And this is what God uses to prepare our hearts to receive His Son. So it's worth asking as we think about that. And we think about the priority that we put on reading God's Word and being God's Word. And we think of how much we labor, especially at this time of the year. And we come alongside in love. And and brothers, I understand we all struggle. And we struggle with our flesh. And we hear, well, I was busy. I had wedding planning, I had Christmas, I had a new job, and those are real challenges, and those are real distractions. But brothers and sisters, if the power and presence of God's Word is not close to us in in our lives, how are we going to wake up? And how are we going to be prepared to receive God's Son? And that brings us to our first point. God prepares His people for Christ with the power and the presence of His Word. Brothers and sisters, you look at the history of America, you look at the history of the world, there is never a revival and a coming back to Christ without first a coming back to the Word of the Lord and to the Gospel. Think Martin Luther, the Reformation. Think of the major revivals that have taken place in the Great Awakening in America. It comes with a conviction of sin that comes directly from people coming directly under the power and the presence of God's word. Not being familiar with God's word because there's plenty of people who are familiar with God's word. But surrendering and coming under the power and presence of God's word. To come under its authority. And there's a big difference as we see. And as John the Baptist will make that point later when he talks about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. People who are experts and familiar with the Bible. But the power and presence of God's word has no effect on their hearts. Because their hearts are hardened by pride and they feel they don't need the mercy of God. Well, as we consider the history of the Old Testament and the history of the world yesterday and today, there are no shortage of charismatic leaders and movements in religion and politics and fitness selling us a vision and a program for a better world and a better life. And typically that vision that they're selling us is something that profits the leaders most who sell those things. But it's so different from what the John the Baptist is doing in his ministry. Why? Because from Genesis onwards, the instrument and sword the Spirit of God always uses to bring true and lasting change is His Word. Very specifically, the power and presence of His Word. And I say this, brothers and sisters, because it's a time and season where you're being sold that you need so many other things. And that extends to our walk with Christ. Well, I need this. I need this. I need to figure out how to do this. I need a better plan for repentance. I need a better this. I need a better church. I need better friends. I need a better way to pray. I need a better Bible reading plan. But John the Baptist doesn't do any of those things, does he? The word of the Lord that he gives is simple. And so often, brothers and sisters, it's a demonstration that we, in fact, feel that we need so many other things besides the Word of God, and that we really don't trust the Word of God to have a power and presence in our lives that's going to change us. Well, in verse 3, Matthew shows us what it is about John the Baptist's ministry that makes it, quote-unquote, so effective or has such an impact. And what's interesting in verse 3 is there's no mention of miracles, there's no mention of signs and wonders, there's no mention of charisma, there's no mention of visions from God, there's no mentions of gifted communication skills or cool experiences or free giveaways. Verse 3, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. This is Matthew's summary of the entirety of John the Baptist, the man, the message, His life, every aspect of his life. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. And it's worth noting, and I want you to look in your scripture, you can see it, I believe, up here. Look very carefully where Matthew has placed this statement. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. And when he says for, that's an explanatory word. He puts this statement, verse 3, right between verses 2 and 4. Well, you'd say, duh right? But look at verses 2 and 4. He places this statement before verse 2 which gives an account of John the Baptist preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's verse 2. John the Baptist preaching. And Then he puts that statement for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah after verse 2 but before Verse 4, which is an account of John the Baptist's life. What he wears, his lifestyle, if you will. Okay, Garment of camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey, leather belt around his waist. And we see right in between these two verses, connecting John the Baptist preaching and connecting his life and his lifestyle, is this statement... This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. And then quoting from Isaiah 46. And I don't believe this is an accident. I believe Matthew was showing us, he's giving us this sandwich. This sandwich of a person's life where the meat and what's right in the center is the word of the Lord. And he's showing us that what sets apart and ties together both the message and the man is the living presence and power of God's word. Now you look at all the people who profess to be believers and you look at all the celebrity pastors and all these great leaders who say they're Christians and you look at the average person who comes in and you press close and you look close and you look at God's word and you look at what they say and invariably you find things where the life does not match up to the profession. But here with John the Baptist, that's not the case. The more people look, the more they dig. The more they follow, the more they see, they realize every aspect of this man's life is tied together by the word of the Lord. New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce says, The multitudes which flocked to the Jordan Valley to hear him from all parts of Palestine did so because men recognized in his preaching a note of authority the like of which had not been heard in Israel for centuries. And when F.F. Bruce is talking about an authority that had not been heard in Israel for centuries, he's making reference to the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Malachi, if you will. Brothers and sisters, there's no shortage of Bible experts and there's no shortage of gifted leaders. But a life that displays the authoritative stamp and integrity of God's Word at every turn, that, brothers and sisters, is a work of God and not man. How's your lifestyle? Does it match your profession of faith, that you belong to Christ, that you are a saint, that you're a holy one? When people were around John the Baptist, they could hear and feel and see the presence and the power and the authority of God's word. And they recognized and saw, here is a man who has walked right off the pages of the Old Testament. It's why Matthew says in verse 3, this is he. Not this is what he was like, this is what he did. This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. And Matthew is making it very clear as Jesus does in Matthew 11.9. In Matthew John the Baptist is more than a prophet. That's what Jesus says. John the Baptist is more than a prophet. John the Baptist is literally a prophet. The voice of Isaiah 46 come to life. He is the fulfillment of God's promise. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And the reason all of Judea is rushing out to the wilderness to confess their sins and be baptized is they recognize in John the Baptist the voice of the Lord. And it freaks them out out. They are saying, and they are thinking, and they are seeing, this is what our parents raised us. These are things that maybe we thought were myths or stories, and it's coming alive, and it's a reality here on our doorstep. We had better pay attention. They are freaked out. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. God's Word shows us our desperate need for the fear of faith. God's word shows us our desperate need for the fear of faith. These people are going out because they are afraid, they are terrified, they are scared. Now, there's no shortage of hellfire and brimstone preachers who try to scare and manipulate people with fear. But John the Baptist is something very different. And Matthew shows us that. Why is that? Because typically hellfire and brimstone preachers who are trying to motivate you to enter into the church or become a Christian, typically the fear they are manipulating with is a type of selfish or fleshly or anxious fear. The fear that is all about us. The fear that is a worry or anxiety about what's going to happen to me. If I don't do A, B, C, D, or E, if I don't step up, If I don't do this or that, my life is going to be worse or my life is going to be difficult. It's typically what Asian parents use, right? To motivate their kids to behave well and to get good grades. If you don't don't do it, if you don't study, if you're out partying with your friends, you're never going to get into a good college and then you're never going to get a good career and you're going to be a bum for the rest of your life, right? Well, sadly, the church and many in the church have used that because it's pragmatic and it's effective in the short term. But we see long term what it does to our children is it just breeds bitterness and resentment. And that at the end of the day, it's just a manipulation that just promotes anxiety and fear. Because our focus in that type of fear is all about who? It's all about me. It's all about me. Well, the fear that we are seeing in some, not everybody, in some who are coming out to John the Baptist. baptism is the fear of faith or the fear of the Lord. And that's something that is very, very different. And we have a definition here. The fear of faith or the fear of the Lord is the overwhelming awe and appreciation for who God is According to his word. It's an overwhelming awe and appreciation for who God is according to his word. Those who have this fear. The fear of faith. The fear of the Lord. When you go through Isaiah. When you go through John at the end in the revelation. And Michael Reeves, the theologian, makes the point that these words and definitions do not do justice to what the fear of the Lord is. But what we do see is they tremble and shake and as they fall down. They are overwhelmed by the proximity and the appreciation, every aspect of how great God is. What's the focus of that fear, brothers and sisters? It's not about me, first and foremost. It's about the glory and the greatness of God. And so it's completely different than that selfish and manipulative fear where people shout that you're going to hell, you're going to hell and gets people to come forward and then there's no change and there's only more anxiety. Am I right with God? Am I right with God? Am I right with God? But when God appears and He comes close, you know exactly where you stand. So much of the anxiety in the Christian faith, people say, oh, I'm struggling in my faith, I'm not sure where I stand. I just, there's all this confusion and ambiguity. What's the remedy? When God shows up, when the power and presence of His Word comes near, and when we see and we believe and we appreciate the greatness of God, there is no ambiguity of where we stand with the Lord. That's Isaiah in Isaiah 6. It's John in Revelation 1. It's an overwhelming awe and appreciation for who God is according to His Word, that in turn leads to a fear of offending and grieving God. The object of this fear is God, not what happens to me first. And it comes from believing God's word. Sinclair Ferguson, in that Advent devotional we handed out, and if you didn't get one last week, there is one at the guest table at the back for you. I do read what I hand out. Sinclair Ferguson describes this fear as, a reluctance to do anything that would grieve the Lord. It is the desire to live under God's smile and to avoid anything that would cause God to frown. It does not include a fear that is totally preoccupied with taking care of me. Does it include a fear of God's wrath against sin? Yes it does. Isaiah 6, woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips. But it's within the context first of appreciating the glory and greatness of God. And when there is that fear of what's going to happen to me, it's really set within the context. It's not even, uh, oh my goodness, is something bad going to happen? That's the fear that we have, the nervous anxiety. No, with Isaiah, he knows exactly what he deserves. It is justified, it is clear He deserves to die. And if God destroys him as he's in the presence of God. That is just and it is right. It's very, very clear. There's no ambiguity. And when there is anger and wrath that comes for a sinner. That fear is demonstrated in an admission that it is just and right and fitting. Such fear, Sinclair Ferguson writes is a mark of God's grace. Such fear is a mark of God's grace where God and love has drawn near and where faith reigns over our heart and our mind and our feelings. Most first century Jews living in Judea knew enough of the scriptures and they knew enough of Isaiah 40 to realize that that if God had begun to fulfill the first part of Isaiah 40, if John the Baptist was indeed the voice of Isaiah 46, then what? Have a look at Isaiah 40 verse 10. After Isaiah 46, Isaiah 40.10, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. And his recompense before him. For those who knew enough of their scriptures. And the more they looked, the more they saw. John the Baptist fits the bill. Ezekiel, Zechariah, Malachi, Isaiah, Isaiah 40. Fits, 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 fits. If this indeed is the voice that is crying in the wilderness, prepare and make straight the paths of the Lord. They were able to connect the dots. If this is Isaiah 46, then Isaiah 40.10 is coming. And God is not far away. He's near and He's around the corner. And if He's coming, He's coming to bring justice and salvation and He's coming to make a reckoning with His people to reward those who are righteous and to recompense those who have lived in rebellion against Him. So you see, brothers and sisters, through John the Baptist, many first century Jews began to believe that God and His Word is real. They began to believe, through the ministry of John the Baptist, that God keeps His promises. All of them. And they began to believe that the Lord was not far away, in fact, He was very near. And the nearer God got through the ministry of John the Baptist's ministry, the less ambiguity there was about where they stood before the Lord. There was no doubt some fleshly fear of people worrying about all those Old Testament passages of God being a consuming fire and that when He came, if you were not ready, you were going to burn. And in fact, God fulfilled some of those in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was absolutely destroyed and the temple was torn down. I'm sure there were many who were focused on what's going to happen to me if I'm not right when God comes. And they were worried about the wrath to come like the Pharisees in verse 7. But there were also those, as we see through the rest of the Gospels, who took one look at John the Baptist, and they knew without any ambiguity that their lives were far from God. Their lives were far from the Word of God. Their lives were about anything and everything other than God. They knew they had not faithfully loved and trusted and obeyed their Lord with all their heart, mind, and soul like John the Baptist the Baptist. And this is what divides with men like John the Baptist. When you see someone whose life and words demonstrate the authority of God's Word and the presence and the power of God's Word, it is convicting because the people saw, if this is what is pleasing to the Lord, if this is the forerunner, if this is what holiness and repentance looks like, it looks nothing like what my life has been or what I've been doing at the temple. And in response, by faith in God and His Word, and the words that they heard from John, many were convicted and grieved and broken over the growing awareness that their lives were a grievance and an offense to God, that they rightly deserved the wrath of God when He came. No ambiguity that their lives were so irreversibly broken and defiled by their pride and their unbelief and their sin, there was only one thing to do. What? Drop everything, rush out to the wilderness, beg for God's mercy. Because this is what true confession of sin and repentance and baptism are all about. It's an admission. I'm messed up. I can't fix it. I can't make this better. There's only one thing to do. I have to plead for clemency and amnesty and ask God Himself to provide forgiveness and a new heart and a new beginning and a new life and give me a second chance to start over. That's why there's the full immersion baptism, not just the ceremonial purification. It's the death going down and coming out a new person. It's publicly confessing. Brothers and sisters, we'll never appreciate the mercy of God that we sang about and we'll never desire it or want it unless we have the fear of faith and appreciation of who God truly is and that he keeps his word and that he is near and not far away. As long as we think God is far away and he isn't coming anytime soon, whatever I look at on my computer, whatever I say to my wife, whatever I do with my kids, whatever I do when nobody's looking, it don't matter. And this brings us to our final point this morning. The fear of faith shows us our desperate need for God's mercy. The fear of faith shows us our desperate need for God's mercy. People sometimes tell me, well, I'm kind of afraid. And many times... You know, I wonder, well, is this the fear of faith or is this just a fear about you? Are you really afraid enough? Do you really see and appreciate how great God is and how close He is and how the eyes of the Lord are everywhere watching over good and evil? And when we have an awareness of that, brothers and sisters, it's not like 1984, some evil government watching your every move on on some camera somewhere. It's actually a gift of God's love. The reason people rejoice in this fear is because as you go through the Old Testament and the New Testament, God shows himself to be a gracious and merciful God whose steadfast love endures forever. You see that throughout the Psalms. David says, what do I rejoice in? It's not his circumstance or his situation. I rejoice that God is just, that God is good, and that his steadfast love endures forever. And this is why God in love sends John the Baptist, to show God's people their desperate need for His mercy. The only thing that can fix their problem. Mercy. A mercy that shows what we need, but what we do not deserve. Well, what is mercy? It's the aspect of God's glory. It's an attribute of God. And it's demonstrated early on in the Pentateuch in Exodus thirty-three nineteen. God shows Moses his glory, and it says, And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So we see that the mercy of the Lord is the aspect of God's holy love and his glory that is expressed through undeserved compassion, forgiveness, and care for undeserving sinners. The mercy of the Lord is an expression of God's holy love and glory that is expressed through undeserved compassion, forgiveness, and care for undeserving sinners. As we come to the New Testament, Jesus shows us what this is. He gives us a lesson in mercy because even though it's throughout the Old Testament and even though God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, right? He makes it known over and over again that the quality that he expects of his people, I want you to be like me. You've received mercy from me and I expect you to give mercy to others. By the time we get to the New Testament, people have forgotten what mercy is. I'll add, as we get to the 21st century, people have forgotten in the church what mercy is. We think mercy is primarily going out and helping homeless folks, and that is. But there's so much more to mercy than just a social gospel and an outreach. That's just a very small sliver, because mercy takes into account our sin. And it takes into account the holiness and the righteousness of God. And because it does that, it shows us how costly God's love is. Jesus shows us this in Luke 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a parable that you're familiar with, right? You know, some scribe or lawyer comes to Jesus and quizzes him on what the most important commands are and He makes mention of our passion statement to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And he wants to press Jesus and says, well, who's my neighbor? And the discussion really is about love. What does it mean to love God and love your neighbor? And Jesus tells this parable that we're familiar with, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And part of the context in the background of that is that Samaritans were treated as filthy dogs and looked down on by the Jews. They were not allowed to come near the Jews. They were not allowed to come into the temple. They were filthy and unclean. Religious Jews wouldn't even touch them when they had to go to the temple. They took the long way around. And in return, Samaritans were none too pleased when Jews showed up. Samaritans were people who were treated terribly by Jews. And yet there's this parable of this Jewish man who gets beaten up and he's lying almost lifeless on the ground and the priest and the Levite and everybody passes and the only person who comes and shows compassion is a Samaritan. A Samaritan showing compassion for someone whose race and group have spat upon him, treated him as a filthy dog, disrespected him, probably not let members of his family come through their territory. And yet, so undeserved, right? It is this Samaritan who shows compassion and shows care and take this person to a place where he pays out of his own pocket, pays the cost to restore this beaten man to wholeness. And when Jesus asks the person, the scribe at the end, Who is it who was a neighbor? The scribe in verse 37 says, the one who showed mercy. And so he shows that love, mercy is an expression of love, but this is what the love of God looks like. It pays the price and it loves those who do not deserve it. What is undeserved. Nobody would fault the Samaritan for walking on. And yet this is not what he did. And we get to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, Jesus gives the parable of the unforgiving servant. And so we see that mercy involves forgiveness. It's more than just a warm coat. And you'll recall in the parable of the unforgiving servant, the king comes, he holds accounts, there's a reckoning. The servant comes and he finds out, well, he's just an incredible debt, overwhelming debt. We'll never be able to pay it back. And he pleads for patience, pleads for compassion, and I'll get it together. And so the king forgives his debt. But then that servant, in turn, goes to other people, and he shakes and chokes and rattles them and says, you better pay up, and then he puts them in the debtor's prison. In verse 32, then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgive you all that debt because you pleaded with me, undeserved forgiveness that pays the cost, not cheap grace. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? So he shows what mercy is, is everything that's preceded beforehand that the king has shown. But this unforgiving servant has not shown. Compassion, patience. Forgiveness, a new start, all of it with the end of restoring a relationship and making a person whole, so that this servant could go on being a servant of the king rather than being thrown into jail. It's about the restoration of a relationship. Brothers and sisters, when we beg for mercy, we are begging for undeserved compassion, undeserved patience undeserved forgiveness. I'm getting what I deserve. This is just, and if you do absolutely nothing for me, that's just and fair. But it's also begging for our relationship to be restored against someone we have offended. And it's an affirmation that we are undeserving, we are unworthy, and we are incapable of making things right That's why we need the offended party to pay the bill. I need someone else to pay the price. I need someone else to make things right. Brothers and sisters, to appreciate and value mercy is to appreciate the greatness and goodness of God and to appreciate our own offensiveness. To show mercy to others is to appreciate the mercy of God that God has shown us to value it to esteem it and that will only come if there is a fear of the Lord and a fear of faith that believes that God is who he says he is holy and righteous that believes God's word is true and that believes God cares so often when we're shepherding and counseling and people are struggling with anxiety struggling with discouragement struggling with despair one of the underlying issues that's there that they say they're wrestling was does God really care if he really cared why would I be here if he really cared why am I still single if he really cared why am I in this job if he really cared why is my job hard why is my marriage hard why is my life hard just show me what I need to do to make this all better But brothers and sisters, when the word of the Lord comes and the spirit comes and he brings that sword that cuts us to the marrow and bone, he begins to expose our heart and he shows, look, the problem's not with God. The problem's with us. We don't want to believe God's word, which he makes plain and clear. We don't want to believe that he's true and he means what he says he does. We don't want to believe that there is a cross before glorification. We don't want to believe that it cost him his son. We don't want to believe that we can't fix this ourselves, and we're indebted to him and we need his mercy desperately. Brothers and sisters, this is what baptism and repentance and the confession of sin are all about. Not infrequently when we shepherd people and we go through different things, people will say, yeah, I'm repenting, it's a little bit better. I don't do A, B, C, D, and E as much as I did last month. Brothers and sisters, that's not repentance. That's not a fear that the Lord is present. That's not a belief that God cares. That's not a belief that Christ sent His Son to die. What prepares us rightly to receive Christ, brothers and sisters... Is a fear of the Lord that shows us our desperate need for the mercy of God. Without that, brothers and sisters, how can we appreciate who Jesus is according to God's word? How can we appreciate that He's the Savior? How can we appreciate His name is Yahweh Saves and that He has come to save His people from their sins? Big deal if I can fix it myself. But you see, brothers and sisters, when God in love rattles our cages, when He gets under our skin, when He shows us that we can't deflect anymore and that there are things in our life that are an offense to the Lord, that we're not right with Him, in mercy and grace and patience and in love, what He's showing us, what the real problem is. You're not right with me, and I have a remedy. And the remedy is one thing and one thing alone. It's my son, Jesus Christ, and it's his cross. And when we see that, brothers and sisters, and we're desperate for mercy like prostitutes and tax collectors who know that their life is an offense, there's an appreciation of the goodness and the grace and the wonder and the beauty of the love of God that Pharisees and Sadducees who believe they know their Bibles well will never see. How can we begin to rightly receive who Jesus is according to God's word if we don't believe what God's word says about God and what it says about us and what it says about our sin? And this, of course, is the testimony of the Pharisees and scribes who have no need for Jesus and no need for John's baptism. And they have no need For a son who dies on the cross. And sadly brothers and sisters. That can be. The testimony of many in the church. Who feel just by virtue of church membership. Or coming to church. Or singing a few hymns. Or knowing the Bible. Or knowing a few Hebrew and Greek words. I'm okay. I'm good with God. And the tragedy with that brothers and sisters. From all that false assurance. Is we miss out. On one of the most beautiful gifts of all. The gift of mercy. Undeserved. Which is Christ our Savior. The very incarnation. Of the mercy of God. Yesterday I found myself. Begging. The manager of a tire center for help. I had the joy of making three trips to Costco yesterday. And if you ever want evidence of the total depravity of man, you do not need to read a theology textbook. You just need to go to a Costco during Christmas on a Saturday. And you will see the total depravity of man. And the reason I was there was I had a problem that I could not fix. I had a leak in my tire. And there was no one who was too keen on helping me. They were busy, obviously, and it was a nightmare. And so, anything that they could do to get me away. So, I was reduced, essentially, to begging. First, the store clerk, and then after that, the manager. And why was I begging? Because I had a problem that I could not fix. And, you know, I could ignore it, as was almost suggested by... Some at the tire center of, hey, no big deal, whatever. And then I said, well, look, you know and I know where this is going to go because I can see the nail in the tire. And I have a wife and I have kids. And if we don't fix this now, how am I going to get to church on Sunday? And if we don't fix this now, then my wife and my kids are going to be somewhere with a flat tire. Do I really want that? Is there anything that you can do to help? I was a little desperate. Desperate enough to make three trips. And ultimately that manager had mercy and said, okay, let me see what I can do. Call me back at 2 o'clock this afternoon and if I can, I'll get you squeezed in. So you spend the better part of the day. And you know what? At the end of the day, it's not a big deal. And I went and thanked the manager afterwards. Why? Because he showed me mercy. He didn't have to. I didn't deserve it. It's no big deal. But all of that, brothers and sisters, came about because a light flashed on in our vehicle, early in the morning, that said, look in the manual. And when you look in the manual that the manufacturer made, it showed that the tire pressure was low. And further investigation showed a nail or a screw in the tire. Now, the propensity of my flesh yesterday was, do I really want to deal with this? I've got a sermon that I've got to prepare. I've got so many things I've got to handle. And the propensity of my flesh is, maybe it's just the cold. Maybe it's no big deal that You know, the tire pressure is just a little bit low because it got cold overnight. We'll get it figured out. We'll deal with it later. But the thing about problems like that is is if you don't take responsibility and handle it, it's going to affect someone else, someone you love. And I make this point, brothers and sisters, because mercy is about being aware that you have a problem that's not going to fix itself. But mercy is also being aware that you have a God who loves you, who is not far away and who is near, and has provided a way to take care of you. But all too often as believers, we end up being like people who just fill that tire up with a little bit of air, and it leaks out. Fill that tire up with a little bit of air. I can fix it on my own. I can fix it on my own. Rather than realizing that there is a God and Father who's paid for everything and has a whole new life waiting for you. A life that celebrates who Jesus is according to his word and that celebrates his mercy. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, you have paid it all, and yet we will never appreciate it until we listen to your word and see that in love you have something to say to us and you have something to say to us. Oh Lord, because you have the remedy. Lord, this Christmas, would you help us to spend time in your word? Would you make us aware of what needs to go in our lives? Would you give us the fear of faith so that we might indeed be desperate for your mercy? And in being desperate for your mercy... Lord Jesus, by faith would you enable us to see how much you love us. In your name we pray. Amen.